to the Beef Watch Podcast. I'm Aaron Berger, a Nebraska Extension Beef Educator. For today's Beef Watch Podcast, we're going to be discussing an upcoming webinar titled Getting More Out of Fall Forage Cover Crops. Is Strip Grazing Worth It? This webinar will occur on Thursday, March 23rd at 6 o'clock Mountain, 7 o'clock Central Time. If you have an interest in being part of the webinar, you can go and view it live by going to the beef.unl.edu website. At the website there, there's an opportunity to click on a registration page where you'll have a, a link sent to you for the webinar. If you're listening to this podcast after the March 23rd date, we will have that webinar archived. Again, you go to the beef.unl.edu website and you go to the archived webinars and you'll be able to find it there. So to discuss the content that's going to be covered, I'm joined today by Dr. Mary Janowski, who's a Nebraska Extension Beef System Specialist as well as Ben Beckman, who's a Nebraska Extension educator. And also we have the privilege of being joined today by one of the cooperators in the project, Doug Steffen, who's an integrated crop livestock farmer from near Crofton, Nebraska. Thanks for joining me today. It's great to be here. Good to be here, Aaron. I'm excited to have this conversation. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to our conversation as well. I, I've always found annual crops and the opportunity to utilize those with strip grazing to be really, I think, a neat opportunity. And this is one of the few times I've seen some actual research data where we've had multiple locations and looked at producers evaluating the, the opportunity to use cover crops with strip grazing. So to set the stage for us a little bit, Ben, give us a little background on this project. I know it's a SARE project that you got some funding for. I guess just tell us more about what occurred with this project. Sure, Aaron. Um, so this was a SARE North Central Region Partnership grant um, that we received. And it was, as you mentioned, you know, a focused at looking at how do we best utilize, you know, annual forages or, or cover crops and, and get the biggest bang for our buck um, when we're looking at some of these grazing opportunities. And so we had five different collaborators across the state. Um, one out in the Panhandle, one over here, um, Doug up in the northeast part of the state, one more in the central area, and then one kind of down in the southwest corner of the state. And just really tried to look at all aspects that, that we could, you know, feasibly working with these producers to set up a system where we compared a more set stock grazing. So where we had our cover crops um, grown and then we just turned cattle out onto those and just graze them all at once, a typical set stock grazing situation versus doing a strip grazing situation where we were, you know, giving a day or two or three's worth of forage at a time and compared those when we looked at the cattle aspect, what we had for those animals um, from a, a, you know, a finishing standpoint or, or a cover standpoint, body condition. Um, we looked at the forage that we were able to produce, um, quality of forage and just really compare between those two systems where we were able to capture more of that forage and, and what we were able to see um, from that standpoint. And so, you know, there was a lot of moving pieces to it. You know, we tried to keep things as even as possible so we could compare it because we had quite a big geographic area that we were covering, but we also wanted to make it realistic. So um, we really tried to work with our producers to you know, the system that they had, the timing that they had, and um, really make this a, a boots on the ground thing. So this was something that was actually applicable to their operations um, that we were just trying to, you know, capture and get data off of. Um, and we did that for two grazing seasons. 
summarize that data and, and hopefully we're able to um, share some things that we got out of that opportunity here um, during this webinar and I guess during our conversation today too. So Ben, just a couple of questions that come to mind for me. So at each location, you had a part of the cover crop that was set stock and then a part that was strip grazed. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. And so we kind of sectioned that out and we tried to have um, uniform stocking rates across that. So we did an estimate on what our forage production was and then, you know, how many animals, they weren't necessarily the same size always, but we tried to keep a, a similar stocking rate for those different areas. But we then grazed them differently so that the stocking density, how many animals we had packed into an area um, at a given time was the the big difference between the two. And then what was the cover crop that was planted? Was there a consistency in time, terms of what was planted at each location? Um, we, we tried to keep it somewhat consistent, but there was, like I said, um, we tried to work with our producers as well. So Doug will tell you, uh, he's had a lot of experience with these cover crops. So he had a pretty diverse mix um, and we had some different seasons with his that that we looked at. You know, a lot of the producers, especially if it was a first time, we tried to do a, a pretty simple cool season fall cover crop where we planted it in late summer and then grazed it into through the late fall, early winter um, and, and did kind of a like an oat brassica or, or other small grain and um, like a turnip radish, some sort of mixture like that was the most common one. But we had some differences, you know, across the board, Aaron, as we worked with our producers on that end. What was the kind of land like, or I should say, what was the previous crop in most cases to where this was planted? Were you going into wheat stubble or something else? Um, that was another, you know, area where we were just working with producers. So um, there were some situations where there were folks that were planting into wheat stubble. Um, we had some that were following, you know, other um, forage crops. We had some um I don't think we had any that was late enough that it, it followed a, a traditional corn or soybean um, because we tried to get those in soon enough to to get some forage off of them um, for the winter. Um, but we did have some diversity across, you know, irrigation, um, that side of things as well. And then what we had for the, the crop prior to it. Yeah, I'll just chime in that um, there was some variation, uh, but most of it was planted either uh, midsummer or late summer. Um, so there was uh, at least one that I remember that was kind of a warm season mix. So it had warm season and cool seasons in there planted after oats that were harvested uh, for grain. And But uh, the majority of them would have been uh, kind of that August planting time frame, as you mentioned, you know, oats with a brassica in there that would be high quality uh, grazing. So selectivity isn't as much of an issue. So we kind of had both of the extremes, some like really low quality forage um, and then some really high quality forage. And what would be kind of the variability you would have seen across these locations in terms of uh, total pounds of dry matter production out there? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so a lot of them really ranged about uh, a ton per acre, but we went from a ton per acre to almost two and a half tons per acre is kind of that range that we had. Um, so again, uh, quite variable. That warm season mix uh, that was planted earlier got really low quality, but of course had a lot more biomass. So as you think about this, um, is there more advantage when you have very high quality forage and you don't really need selectivity versus, you know, maybe allowing a bit more selectivity um, with some lower quality forage and allowing them to maybe get a little more 
performance with a little less grazing. It's, of course, it all depends on goals. Doug, tell us about your experience with the project, but I guess maybe before you dive into that, just kind of lay the groundwork a little bit for us about your farm, how you've utilized cover crops there. Uh, just help give us a little bigger picture of, of what your operation looks like with that. Sure. Yeah, with our our operation up here in uh, northeast northeast Nebraska near Crofton, that so we, you know, as you stated earlier, we're we're a diversified crop and livestock operation to where I have a feedlot operation where we'll uh, background and finish calves, and I also have a, a cow calf a cow calf operation as well. So we're all dry land uh, dry land farming in, in the area that we operate in, and we're. We use a diversified uh, cropping rotation as well, where we grow oats, oats for seed. We got corn, uh, soybeans. I'll also grow uh, some sorghum for seed as well, and 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 then also uh, we'll do like a a, a triticale. It just kind of depends on operation, but we really try and focus on incorporating those uh, cereal cereal crops into the rotation to allow us the opportunity uh, to come back and. Uh, plant those cover crop mixes uh, to help help our operation in um, either bringing bringing the, and putting the cows with the calves on that or and then also alleviating some of the the pressure on our on our pasture so we can lo- allow a greater rest rest periods and and things like that f- uh, for our operation so we look at it just as another tool uh, and opportunity um, I've been doing uh, cover crops for gosh probably about 10, 10 years and um, I like utilizing the the diversity uh, within that within our mixes because as we experienced our first year uh, that we we planted it it was after after our oats uh, that we had harvested for grain uh, really really got really dry uh, and we just didn't have a whole lot of uh, growth or a great amount of success growing our forages in that in that late fall so so we didn't have have a opportunity to graze really have anything to graze so then we um, I had like so so there's rye and um, kind of some turn well we had rye and turnips and like a purple top turnip and other other in our mix that ended up overwintering so then we were able to um, purchase feeders and we run those on we so we just backgrounded some lighter weight calves and were able to uh, background on our on that cover crop and uh, and move them through there so we weren't able to recognize one opportunity but then Later on, we were able to recognize an opportunity for us and, and utilize those cover crops. So I call it the shotgun approach sometimes uh, to where I, I'm trying to get as much diversity out there uh, because if if we miss one thing, maybe we have an opportunity for another one down the road. So, Doug, if you don't mind, tell a little about your cropping system because I think uh, some folks are trying to think through in their mind, how do the pieces of all this fit together? What does that look like? You mentioned you've got corn and soybeans, you're growing some crops for seed, but what's, is there a typical rotation for you or, or how does that look? I am still working on figuring all that rotation out uh, each year kind of, kind of changes for us, but uh, usually I'm, I'm trying to focus on about a, a four crop rotation where I'm trying to utilize. So we'll have a cereal grain, utilize it. So I'm actually, this is based off the research done, done at Mead. Uh, by the by UNL where they have a cropping rotation of they'll do like the cereal grain like oats with a cover and then they'll come with corn and then they'll go with soybeans 
uh, as a legume crop, and then they come in with a, a grain sorghum after the soybeans, and then back into into your cere cereal grains. So that's that's really what I'm trying to the cropping rotation uh, that I'm trying to simulate uh, in what in what we're doing. So I have just about a four uh, four crop rotation is how that is looking for for me in our in our area. So typically it'll be four years before we go to back to a corn crop. Um, you know, I, I visit with another uh, producer up in South Dakota. He used, he, he'll go like corn, corn, soybeans, and then wheat. So that's what our operation, I guess, does that, does that kind of explain or help a little yeah. bit what we're trying to do? Yeah, I know that that gives a big picture of kind of what your system looks like in terms of a target. I guess you mentioned you've been utilizing cover crops now for about 10 years. Just give some perspectives, lesson learned, things you've observed big picture wise in terms of using cover crops over the last 10 years. What are some things from your perspective you've learned? What are they doing for you? Obviously, you must think they still have some value or do have value for you in, in your production system because you're continuing to use them. Mm -hmm. Sure. I, the thing that I really uh, find value uh, in in our in the cover crop system uh, is the ability to be flexible. I guess is, is where is where I'm at. Is like, so if I see there's there's some opportunities. A, example would be is so like so like last last year I was I was concerned it was going to be a drier year. So then I was able I just set some acres aside where I utilize cover crops. Uh, so by utilizing those cover cover crops and um, and grazing that with through, through a strip strip system, we were able basically we're able to get through a really dry year uh, without having to buy any extra feed or anything like that. And we were able to let our pastures rest a little bit longer, so we could we we didn't have um, didn't have any issues, I guess. Or I mean, there was concerns, but it was. It just gave us that opportunity. Um, another thing that I really like to see what it does. I am studying more on on the biology within the soil and and how I, how I'm able to cycle the nutrients naturally uh, by utilizing cover crops and the diversity within that. Um, and those and I'm seeing those cereal grains really. Are, I'm starting to see these indications where uh, the cereal grains are helping improve my fungal diversity uh, within my soil. Uh, so then that's helping me um, unlock some of those those nutrients that are that are tied up in there. So, um, you know, with the uh, using those cover crops after after each crop, it's what I've experienced and, and what I've been utilizing. It's helping me um, diversify an operation, open up windows of opportunity, utilizing livestock. It's improving my soil um, by having the diversity out there and then also, and then it's reducing my cost, my input cost, uh, cause through that, uh, through that, um, that cropping rotation that meat is done, they've, that's been a, like a 40 year study of where they've utilized no fertilizer on that is my understanding. And so that's something that I'm trying to simulate as well. So it's utilizing, really trying to simulate diversity that we'll see in our native pastures. You know, we see all these different crops, some things it's been really interesting to me. Now I'm not going to say other, there's other producers that will have different experiences, but I'll, I'll graze like this oats, like I'll do a spring mix where I'll drill it in the spring of like this oats, pea and barley uh, mix. And uh, it, it's really interesting to me that the cows don't necessarily go out and select the peas. They will leave those behind before 
which is exactly opposite of whatever what what I thought uh, to be within that mix. So anyway, I guess that's that's kind of what we're seeing in our operation on those those things. So Doug, share your experience with strip grazing. I guess maybe talk a little bit about what you have done in the past in terms of grazing cover crops and had you used strip grazing before this project? Was this one of the first times you've used it? I guess share your perspectives on that. Uh, so I've I've used it in the past uh, prior to do this project. So I've had some experience with it. Uh, I've also uh, talked to other individuals and trying to gain additional knowledge and and uh, insight into the the how tos and the the ways to try and, and manage it. Depending on the time of year and what you're wanting to achieve with some of your goals, it's things always change. You know, if it if it's in the springtime, uh, you have an active growing plant. So then you're, you're going to be challenged with that plant's going to, if it's like a spring spring type crop, like a cereal grain, like an oat pea or barley, it's going to grow really fast or a rye. So it, it's figuring out the right equation for you. You either have to have a lot, whole lot of livestock that are going to be consuming quite a bit and you're going to have to go fast. And I do this for, each year. I say I'm going to do better <laughs> with it is like, it looks like that oats, pea, and barley. It looks like, oh man, we're just not. It's just not ready to start grazing yet. And then all of a sudden, I go two weeks, and then I'm like, oh shucks, I'm now I'm behind the eight ball. Um, so um, I don't ever feel like I, I, I don't feel like I've hit the, the silver bullet of um, grazing that properly yet. But um, Doug, can I just chime in here because I think that's a very common. Uh, issue. Um, and I think it's really a great advice, right? Is that especially with that spring growth is is not waiting too mm-hmm. long. <laughs> it's deceiving. It's like, it's not ready. It's not ready. Oh gosh, it was ready a week ago, right? Like yeah. making sure that you are, you may be going a little bit before you think it's ready uh, is is kind of an important thing for those uh, spring annuals. It It is. And I, and I have other producers that um you know that have talked to me and I, I'll, I'll tell them that, that you know they've it, it's a very easy thing to fall into um you know you just you, by looking at it with your eye you're like well i just don't want to mismanage this and then so you're like i'm going to wait and then you wait and then you're like oh shucks so anyway it's uh, and that you know with so i think that's really great in my, in my viewpoint that's a really great opportunity for a producer is you can get there a little bit early. That, it, that, that plant is going to be really resilient. So you graze that early and it may look like it's been grazed too far because I've, I've done that um, with this, in this study even, where I was out there early with these, these calves and I, I, I probably let them there too long and I was feeling, I, I was have this feeling of like it, I've harmed the soil. My goal is, is always, how can I improve the soil? Because as I, as I work to improve the soil, I truly believe that as that improves, it's going to also help improve my operation, uh, you know, and, and benefit me more. So I was like, I hit that rye really early. I took it so down so far and I'm like, oh, shoot. And then, so then we moved, we moved them off of that onto the, onto the next stuff. And, and, and then I, w- I was just amazed as I kept moving through the system that I had set up. I finally, I, I didn't have enough cattle and I got to a point to where, and then it matured too long. And it was like, but well, what I first hit the regrowth on that was just absolutely amazing to me. So I don't believe, and I could be wrong on this is that 
I don't believe there's a really a way to, if you're grazing like a rye or an oak really early, like if you thought you've grazed it too far and, and you're moving them, I think you'll still grow quite a bit of biomass or still have that opportunity um, as, as you move them on. So Doug, I completely agree with you. That's something I've observed too. And I've done the same exact thing where I, uh, you know, maybe went, oh, they can go another couple of days. I'll come and move them on Monday kind of thing. And whoops, I went too far. Uh, but it grows so fast and it's very different in terms of its goals from a perennial. So from a perennial management, right, you're worried about reserving the roots and making sure uh, it's trying to want to to be able to make sure it comes back next year. Whereas the annuals, its whole goal in life is just to produce, you know, that seed. Uh, so it's really resilient. So you are totally on target. And in fact, it's a completely different mindset from from managing like your traditional pastures. You can hit it a bit hard. Yes, it's going to take a little bit longer to recover, but it will recover. So, you know, it's not the end of the world. And sometimes you want to set it back so that you can keep up with it. Right. Yeah, that's sort of that's totally true. And, you know, and, and I and I mentioned to Ben earlier, we talked about this just, um, you know, so so I grazed in the spring one time and then it grazed in the fall. Well, I ended up grazing it really hard in the fall. And then we had so it was last, not this winter, but the winter before. So I grazed it that fall really hard and we had a really dry, really dry winter. I mean, basically very, very little snow to no snow uh, and, you know, just stayed open. Well, when I came back after I'd removed the livestock from that and I came back to that field, um, I just didn't have a lot of regrowth. So, so in the fall of 21, we had some really tremendous growth. Like we just caught some rains timely. So we harvested the oats. Uh, we got the cover crop planted. It was looking really dry. I uh, caught some timely rains and we had some just tremendous, I don't know if uh, Ben has any of the numbers, what the dry matter was out there or not, but I mean, there's a lot of good dry matter out there and it was really, I was super excited about it. And the cattle looked really, did really well and looked great on it. But then I grazed too much and then we went into the winter and then like my rye and that stuff was really spotty afterwards. So, you know, and there could be a couple of factors that occurred uh, with that is maybe I grazed it too hard. Uh, the other, we did have oats in that mix and in those turnips, and they were so lush that maybe they just outcompeted the rye. So, you know, there's a lot of experimenting, uh, you know, and, and I, I wouldn't, I would recommend to any producer, if there's going to be some things like you're, you thought it was going to be like that, and maybe it doesn't turn out necessarily that way, but I don't think it's a reason to throw the, you know, throw the baby out of the bathwater necessarily, and or or just throw your hands up and give up because, we're always learning and always trying to recognize how, how can we find opportunities to, to benefit us? And that's another thing uh, that as I've done, been out, I've planted. So this oats, pea and barley, and I'm out, I'm checking my crops and the, or checking the crops, seeing how things look and it's early spring. And there's, you know, I may find an oats plant that may, you know, have one to two inches of growth on it, which isn't a whole lot. I'm still seeing bare dirt in some areas. Um, well, I was digging down and I could find roots like eight inches down. So there's always a benefit out there. We just don't necessarily always see it visually with our eyes, I guess. Yeah, I'd chime in on this one too. One of the observations I made a while ago was with some like three inch tall rye that had been planted after soybeans. And we had taken a soil probe truck and and went down uh, through that plant and looked at how far the living root was. And for three inch tall rye, it was 36 inches deep on the root. And it just shocked me. 
because you know not a lot going on up top but a whole lot going down by, down below and that was that was kind of eye opening to me anyways about you know what you're saying there about how much is happening um that we may not be able to see right so you know and, and you know as we look at this mary you know we see this as a i truly believe that you know we're we're stewards of the land and as we as we look to care for this you know so we have our perennial pastures where we're looking at grazing that our you know our, our perennial crops are we're wanting to pr- protect that root system uh, so you know it's managing the grazing and and being responsible with our, our grazing through that um, you know in the winter time that plant deposits all of its energy back into its root system which then feeds a lot of the biology within within that soil now our annual crops you know it's a different tool right so we're looking at that tool and it's feed it, it is feeding our soil but it's feeding its soil with its roots all the way up until the point to where it starts to produce the seed. So then as that annual crop, it has a different mindset in that is like, I have to produce enough seed to stay viable and keep the life cycle continuing. So then it takes the, it's no longer feeding the soil, it's feeding, feeding those kernels uh, in that plant. So, so our biology in our soil is, it's not being fed by the plant anymore. It's having to search for those things. So, so one of those things like utilizing the, the strip grazing or, you know, being able to move those animals through there can really, can really help them kind of, I would say, you know, take a bite out of that plant, set it back a little bit to where it's going to keep that active root in feeding the biology within the system. Now I told, I told Ben this too. I didn't, did notice it was about May, May 8th when my rye crop that we had planted really, it was like an almost a switch flipped and the cattle that were out there, they're like, this stuff is not nearly as attractive as it used to be. And, and, and it become, became more difficult. They, so, so then what happened was, is then the paddock sizes had to increase uh, for us. So we still continued to graze it, trying trying to gain some value, some greater value from it for the livestock as well. Um, but, you know, they weren't quite as content. So we had to increase the paddock size and we, we had more biomass that was getting trampled onto the top of the soil over what may have been getting utilized by the livestock. So early on, we used quite a bit of the forage at top, but then, you know, as we moved through and the season continued to uh, change and progress, you know, things change. So another thing I would say, so, so we had oats. So it was, it was planted to um, oats the, the previous year. We got it planted to a cover crop. So then it was going to be going to corn. So we were growing corn and we, I also then right next to it, we had, it was going to be soybeans. So basically I planted the corn a little bit later and we were still grazing where we we're going to have the soybeans planted after after that. So, I mean, what I would recommend to people is by setting up, just looking at your system and setting, setting things up is like, you know, is like, I kind of had it planned where we we're going to have all the livestock through. So when we could still get t- timely corn planting, but then it still left open an opportunity for us to, you know, our cattle were still out there while we were conducting field operations to get the corn planted. And then by the time the cattle were about done, we transitioned into soybean planting and then just rolled up the fence and went right behind them. 
So, and we didn't graze this field just because the plan was, is to let the crop basically be a cover for out in that field, um, is that we planted this cover crop later in December. It was December 20th is actually when we seeded it. And on May, it's about May 15th, it was rye, vetch, and um, like a winter pea type mix. It was still in the vegetative state and approximately knee high prior to us terminating it to plant soybeans into it because we had planted it after corn or seeded it after corn and it was still dry. So we're waiting for a rain. So there's all kinds of different ways to try and manage it. Um, Another thing I recommended to Ben is, you know, if you can have outside perimeters set up to where you can kind of have a, a skeletal structure there so you can put in a fence real fast, like an electric fence and, uh, you know, just taking the time to put together the planning. So your outside structure can help support any time type of uh, electrical structure that you can string quickly down your fields and uh, have a fence up so you can be controlling that grazing. So, you know, I, we also did the set stock grazing and, uh, honestly it was nice in this, in the sense that, uh, we just turned the cattle out there and, and they just, they grazed. It didn't take, take quite a, after getting the fencing set up, it didn't take quite as much labor where you just turned them out there. Uh, but the, at the same time, we had areas to where, you know, the water source was at. Uh, we were moving the water. So wherever they congregated at, it really, you had a lot of animal impact in certain areas. So there's a time and place for every everything. So it just depends on maybe what your resources are available to you. So Doug, in, in 2021, you kind of had a, you had forage sorghum, some brassicas, uh, some rye, um, oats and sunflowers. So you had kind of a diverse mix and you started grazing that, like you planted in August, you started grazing that in October. One of my questions would be about uh, strip grazing in the fall. Um, how do you manage that? I, I know one of the challenges, uh, at least for me, when I was doing it, was I I wasn't really set up very well, and I had uh, rebar posts and pounded them in the ground. They go in the ground just fine, even when it's frozen. The problem is getting them out. <laughs> <laughs> so I was kind of curious what you did. Uh, so it so for in uh, you know in October of twenty twenty one, yeah, they so so that went in. You know, they went in went in pretty easy now we didn't so with the cover that was out there we didn't actually we didn't have any issue getting the post in or out for for the uh for the weather that we had so so we set so what i do is i i basically set up i figure out the widths that i want to have and i'll set out i'll put uh, take fiberglass post and then i um have have those lanes established basically uh, with fiberglass posts at each point to where I'm going to uh, connect the cross fence to. Uh, so then I can kind of put a little bit extra, I can uh, apply extra uh, tension in those areas. And then we just do um, the, the rebar post where we, we pound them in. So my kids are really good. I have learned and anyway, that's their projects. And they, I, I feel it's an opportunity to teach them and they can learn more about that. So, you know, if some do get a little bit tight in there or where they freeze in a little bit, usually it wasn't enough to where we take a vice grip and twist them a little and it would break free. So the cross fencing wasn't over too bad for us there. So um, so it's it's having those 
those um, the main line set up and then just doing the cross fencing as we go. So, yeah, I got you. That was um, I mean, you went till maybe mid uh, November. Um, yeah. Raised into January and February and then it gets frozen. They're pretty good. No problem getting them in. Uh, but I did right. notice like the rebar, if it has like that texture on it, it, it gets harder frozen in than if it's smooth metal. Um, yeah. That was one thing that I did, did notice a big difference in, but I hadn't thought about, like I did try twisting. I hadn't thought about the vice grips, which probably would have made my life easier. <laughs> well, and see, I never, I never, I did not think of that until like, my dad was helping me and he'd take the vice grip out and do that. And I'm like, and then I tried it and I'm like, oh, wow, that was so much easier. So, it, you know, it just gives you, you can give it just a little extra torque um, on it. So for your wire, Doug, are you using like a poly wire? Or are you using a high tensile wire? What are you using on your, your division fences internally where you're moving it frequently? So the division fences internally, it's just like a, like a, a poly wire that, so, so really what it is, I, and I, <laughs> the system that I have is we have a, um, a, a poly wire, wire roll that we get from Baumgars. And uh, I have this platform we set on the back of the four-wheeler and we'll roll out. So we connect it to one, one post, like one fiberglass post on our, our, our division system. And then we drive to the other post and um, I pull it tight, tie it up there. And uh, then we go back and, and put the post in. So, uh, and then when I roll up the next one, uh, we untie one side, we drive down to the other side and uh, we tie it. So we're cutting it each time uh, with like a needle nose pliers or like a side cutters. And then I tie a knot in it, roll it. We have it on this roll where I, I just use a cordless drill and we roll it up and then we go back and pick the post up and then the cattle move on to, they just, they keep moving forward. So uh, usually we'll try and have like two to three paddocks set up ahead of time so the uh the wire roller like i'll see those where you, you know you can the hand rollers uh i would like to get some of those i just need to do that because we shut the fence off and sometimes they you know how cattle like to go around and find the perimeter um sometimes they don't see that poly wire and they keep walking through there so until they i get the fence turned back on so Sometimes it's a race between me and the cows. So I guess we get to have a little fun in the day of seeing who's faster. So but. <laughs> when you think about your strip grazing versus set stock, what did you see in terms of difference in utilization? Uh, and then also I would say, as you look at the impact of the subsequent crop, did you see any impact there? The, uh, yes. So in the set stock grazing, you know, they, they left areas and then they would congregate in other areas. So we'd, we'd have, and which is always surprising to me each time is like you'll find an animal that like in the set stocks set, set stock system uh they'd always go up and graze the hills so the more the more fragile ground uh you know where it's sandier and and, and stuff like that they would seem to congregate in those areas um and and so those those areas would receive a greater impact and then and then also then where we had a waters watering system at and then so then i'd have other areas where it they just didn't touch it much. It, it is because they spent more time in these other areas. The things I didn't like is where our watering system was at. There's a tremendous amount of impact. Uh, so I was worried about compaction, you know, getting a good stand of corn uh, there and, and, 
And then also in those sandier areas or on our hilltops where they congregated at, my stand was poor in those areas. You know, we just didn't, we didn't get quite the stand. It was, and then we, we had a drier year as well. So it, it really affected it there just because we didn't have as much cover. Now where we did our strip grazing, there's just a better distribution of the grazing impact. You know, it was, it was uniform across the entire area that they were, they were given before they, they moved on to the next one. We utilized more of the area doing the, uh, the strip grazing. So, and I told Ben, you know, this too, is there, you know, our, our watering system was this, uh, basically we just have a, well, it's a feed bunk on a dolly uh, that holds about 700 gallons of water. And I have a thousand gallon water tank that I, I fill up and we hook up and I pull up the water tank along with the thousand gallon tanks. We have about 1700 gallons of water in the forum and we fill up the water tank and then I cart the, the, um, the thousand gallon tank back to the place and fill it up while they're using it. So that does take some extra time. I said, you know, where we set up our, our perimeter fencing and then kind of our our divisional fencing that we're going to have there for our main lines. Um, I'd set up a watering line to where we just uh, plug and connect, and then you can pull the pull the uh, water tank through those would, would make it a lot a lot easier to have that. We we have the ability to do it. I'm just working on figuring out what is the best best system. I believe I don't want to put in a water system and and then uh, decide that I don't like where it's at. So I guess I'm trying to figure out what I is works best for us. As you looked at your grazing days per acre with the set stock versus strip graze, was there much difference there or was it designed to be pretty similar? How did that work out? Actually, there was, there was more on the, there was more grazing. So the two were right across from each other on in the one and uh, different fields. The, um, with the actual, the, the strip grazing, we had, we had more grazing on that. And then we actually had more biomass left afterwards. So the cattle that were on the, the set stock grazing, we're watching the other ones. Move. <laughs> it was really, looking back on it, it was really funny because they just, those just sit there and watch the other ones move through. And they were like, they, we actually had some crawl over and over the fence to get with the other ones. So they had, there was, I didn't see a difference in the body condition uh, of the animals between either system. Uh, just the ones that moved were staying more content is what I would say. And what I saw within that system. Now that also depended upon us dialing in, understanding what the right amount of forage was for them to, we would take, I knew the number of head, the approximate weight that was out there and then just figured about how much dry matter they needed in a day. I would tell my kids, I'm like, well, when we're planning this out, it's like, it's like, we're just giving them so much in a feed bunk. We're trying to figure this out and through our observation and how much time it took and what we had for resources of time, we would move them on that. So sometimes they would, the, in the, the strip grazing, they would, we didn't give them enough. So then, you know, they, they were less content, but then when, if we gave them too much, then they wouldn't utilize it enough. So um, it's, it's always adjusting and modifying as you go there. But in, in your question, the set stock, they would lay on those hills, but then they wouldn't, they, they then they'd come over and want to crawl in and go, go with the cattle that were going through the uh, strip grazing. So I'd echo what you said there, Doug, about observations. Um, we also had uh, several studies where I, I noticed a difference in, in um, 
I think it was the 2020, the winter of 2020, 2021, we had cattle out. Uh, they were calves and we were either strip grazing them or continuous grazing them. And it was really cold in that January, February timeframe. And we actually got a lot of snow. And one of the things that we got so worried about it being so cold that we decided we were going to supplement. And so we went out and and moved the fence. Um, they had kind of belly high snow and we moved the fence on the strip. And then we fed some sweet brand to everybody and the strip calves didn't even look at the sweet brand. They went straight to the new allocation and started digging uh, for the, it was rapeseed and oats in this case. And the continuous went straight to um, the, the sweet brand because one of the big things is that they go through and select all the good stuff first in continuous grazing. And so this was later in their grazing season. So they were looking mm -hmm. for some higher quality forage. Yeah, and then and that's where it was. So when they were first out there, you know, they they weren't they weren't there. They weren't along. They weren't the set when we first turned the set stock out. They weren't walking the fence, you know, or walking that fence, looking looking at you know at the greener pastures or whatever. They were they were content. But then when we get to the later part of it, it was I, that's a that's an observation that I made in that it, we had a high percentage of those cattle were just. Like you, I, I would make the assumption that they they had already selected everything they were content with, and and now they were looking. When you're not getting what you want in your diet, you're like, well, can I find it somewhere else? So, were you moving every day then, Doug, or was it every other day, or what did your moves look like? Our moves uh, would be we'd do it every day. So when we were we'd be moving the water when we'd be bringing the water out there, we'd typically move in the morning. That's when we would typically move. So we'd have the water filled the the day before and then in the morning we'd bring it out move the daily moves is what we're doing with the set stock grazing and about how much time would that take you all together i'd say about an hour and a half for each for each move each day that's about it would what it would take for us okay to me this is going to sound maybe a little bit interesting but the i enjoy the moves of the cattle and seeing them walk into the grass and and, and go and start grazing there's nothing better than uh, watching an animal move forward and go in and select and just hearing that bite of grass for some reason. So it's it, it, it was more therapeutic for me as well to be out there and moving them because uh, you just it, they uh, they just go in there and they're so content, peaceful. So that it was an hour and a half of fun, I guess. So how did that compare then in terms of time to the cattle that were set stock? I mean, obviously, they still had to be watered and things like that. Or did you have a permanent water system for them? Uh, for them, so we had a permanent water system set up. So that was the one thing, you know, the watering was the biggest thing, the biggest time, time uh, consumer was. So then we were hooking up the tank and and then pulling it forward and filling the water and then uh, rolling up the wire, rolling up the poly wire and, and uh, setting a couple more up for each each day. So those are the biggest time time consuming things. So. Um, we would also set up a, like a back back fence. So we may have moved them like two moves before we moved the back fence up before we had. So we had like two, three days uh, where they may have had a bigger area to go to, uh, but they typically wouldn't go back because there wasn't any re there wasn't much regrowth for them in, in those moves. So um, time wise, it was it was less. So the set stock, you know, that was only probably 20. 20 minutes a day when we're going out and just 
checking them or driving through them to check the mineral and, and things like that. So when you looked at the subsequent corn crop on the set stock versus a strip graze, and again, I realize fields are not exactly the same, but what observations did you have from that? So my observation with that, um, you know, we had, I had, a, in my viewpoint, I had a better stand in the, 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 um, there was a better stand in the, where we move the cattle. Um, I had some areas to where we had, you know, a higher uh, concentration of cattle where they just basically would lounge out at. So we didn't quit, get quite the stand that I wanted to see there. Um, also, you know, in some of the trailing uh, that we had, I didn't get as good of a stand because they were trailing back to water uh, as they moved, moved throughout the field. So yield wise, it wasn't overly significant, but that's what I did notice is just a I had a little bit better stand on the uh, where we did the strip grazing. So Mary, as you look at the producers you worked with across this study, what are some, I guess, big picture observations or consistent themes that you came away from the study with? Well, so the first thing is, I mean, the majority of the of the producers were, were looking at moving about twice a week. Um, there were a couple who did, you know, once a week. And then, of course, like Doug, maybe did daily. Um, but across all of those, like if if we look at the number one thing was an increase in harvest efficiency, which is what we expected. So they got more grazing capacity off of the same acres. Um, and it was about a 35% increase and it varied considerably. And that depended a lot on how high their stocking density was um, on their strip graze versus their continuous. And then um, there was went from the extreme of, you know, 20 days of grazing to over 70 days of grazing. So as you can imagine, the shorter number of days you get for the continuous, the less advantage strip grazing would be. But the other thing that I think was is really interesting is if we look at the amount of, uh, so we did pre-graze and then post-graze biomasses. So we kind of knew about utilization and the the interesting thing is on the continuous for the same AUM. So, right, uh, if we were to look at it as a thousand pound animal unit, um, they essentially had double the amount of disappearance um, for the same number of AUMs on the continuous. So they're losing a lot more to trampling. And so that's why we're getting more grazing off of that strip is because uh, we were able to capture more of that as intake other things that were kind of intriguing to me anyways was uh, some of the observations actually that Doug pointed out about animal performance. Um, there were a few uh, studies. There was two sites where uh, we actually had gain data um, and some replication for that. And gain on the individual animal basis decreased if we strip grazed. And however, on an acre basis, it was 60% greater if we strip graze. So you, you give up a little bit of individual animal performance to gain uh, more gain off the same acres, which uh, from an economic standpoint uh, still pays. And when I'm talking about difference in performance, we're really looking at one study was like a, like a almost a two pound a day gain for the continuous and then for the strip graze, they were about 1.7 pounds. So you're losing about a third of a pound a day. And that was on an oat brassica mix. And then the other one was like a really um, uh, early planted, like mid-July planted 
had a lot of millet in it, like pearl millet, Japanese millet, and sunflower. Oh, that was an interesting observation. The sunflower was the first thing to go. They went through and picked all the heads off. Um, this was grazing, uh, really starting in about November. Uh, and they would pick the heads off. And so on the strip graze, when you would give them a new piece, that's the first thing they went and did was pick all the heads off the sunflowers. But in that one, they gained about 1.5 on the continuous and they were down to uh, about 1.3 on the strip. So uh, we really didn't see huge impacts on individual animal performance, but it was statistically um, just a little bit less. So gain per acre, much greater if you stripped it because you got so many more grazing days off of it. So Mary, another, I, I, so I guess I want to ask a question with the sunflower grazing, because I've had conversations with other, and, and I've seen that too, where you'll turn them into a, a, a mix where you have the sunflowers um, and, and these sunflowers have, have died. So they, uh, they go straight to the heads, but I've had other people comment where um, they'll have in the sunflowers that are growing still, you know, not that haven't, haven't matured or haven't been killed by a frost yet. And they, that are actively growing and the, the cows will not graze. The cattle won't graze the sunflowers until, um, those basically the sunflowers have ripened or, or matured. Yeah, they're looking for that that uh, that seed. So there was it wasn't fully uh, developed. Uh, I mean, in terms of the head, like there were some uh, seeds that had developed, but it wasn't the whole head. It wasn't you know a really pretty fully utilized. But I did because I'm a nerd. Uh, I did go and and take some uh, heads off and actually uh, send them in for analysis because I was really curious what was there. <laughs> and one of the things I was interested in was how much fat was in it, because to me, you know, sunflower seeds will have quite a bit of fat. And on average, those seed heads um, from that particular uh, set was uh, about seven and a half percent fat, which I thought was kind of interesting. And there was no starch, which was the other thing I was kind of interested to see. The other really interesting observation was that we had Japanese millet in that mix, and it also was fully headed out. And they did select the seed heads of the Japanese millet. Uh, so they would go out and you would see in their feces. So I don't know how much of it they were actually using, but you would see in their feces a bunch of uh, the Japanese millet seeds. Uh, and it was about 20% starch if you just pulled those heads off and looked at what was in them. Okay. And, and I've, that's been some of my, I, it wasn't with Japanese millet seed heads or anything like that, but so in the, in the oats that I was, oats, peas and barley that I was grazing, it got farther along than I had hoped it would. It, <laughs> this was the part that I enjoyed was I, I'd, I'd turn the cows into a new patch. So the oats had been headed out. It was just in the milk stage. Those cows would is like they just put their mouth on that the head of that oats and they would just pull up and just strip everything they could off of it. It was it, it was funny to me because I just it was like you know they weren't necessarily selecting the leaves anymore, but they're you know the animal will go and find where the nutrition is at for them is where is what I observed. So it was just well funny watching them strip all the seed heads off, and then you check the feces like you said and. It was just, it was full, full of all the oats kernels uh, that they had taken, taken off. Yeah, I, I think they do. I mean, they, they figure out what's good. I know one other observation that was interesting is a couple producers reported that the cattle didn't want to eat the rapeseed at first. And then 
when it actually got frosted and and got later in the season, they really liked it then. And I think part of that is because your sugar accumulates in the fall. And so uh, the rapeseed is really good at accumulating sugar. So it's almost like it's not preferred from a nutritional standpoint, although it still is fairly highly digestible, but it seems like it sweetens up and they and then they think it's really palatable later in the season. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, anything else on this topic? I really appreciate, Doug, your perspective. It's always good to hear from somebody that's out in the midst of it and their observations, I guess. Mary, Ben, anything else you want to weigh in on as you think about this project, things learned, takeaways that you think would be valuable? Well, I have two two thoughts. One is, you know, I mentioned the increase. Um, some people really are interested in, in what those numbers might look like. Uh, so it was on average, it was 1.24 AUMs per acre for the continuous, and it got bumped up to 1.68 AUMs per acre uh, for the strip graze. And that's pretty similar to what I observed when we were, when I was first doing some fall grazing with calves, I was getting about 1.3 AUMs an acre off of it. So like if I graze like a calf, uh, an acre, I'd get about 60 days of grazing just to put that in perspective. And out at US Mark, they were reporting um, about 50% more than what I was getting. And so I started asking questions and they were moving twice a week to once a week. And I was just set stocking. And so it was really nice to see um, that that seemed to bear out uh, in this study as well, that that seems to be a pretty good number to expect about a 35 to 40% increase in grazing capacity. And the other thing I want to point out is about quality of the forage, right? If I have really high quality forage, strip grazing might be a really big benefit if I have animals that don't have that high requirement, like um, a dry cow, you can still make use of a really high quality forage by limiting their access. So you don't have to give them full intake. And in fact, we have done that before. Um, Actually out at US Mark, they had a pivot fence what they were using. They had 400 cows on a pivot and they were giving them like an eighth of an acre a day. So they were really being limited down, um, but they were fully meeting their needs. So you can kind of play with the quality of the forage relative to the animal, you know, high quality forage using a growing calf or a lactating cow, right? Then you don't really want to limit intake so much. But in some of some of the situations, you might have a high quality forage. It's just too much for a dry cow. Yeah, that's a great point, Mary. I mean, it's, you know, and, and that's the thing that I've told mentioned to Ben also and or in any conversation it allows you to manage and control your operation how you want it, how you want it to. So, you know, if you're needing that full feed, then you can have a full feed. But if you look at, you're looking at your resource and like, well, I have this really high valued feed, but I don't necessarily have the animal to match what the value of the feed is, which is, is an area that I struggle with because with the, like a dry cow, I'm like, I'm also trying to be profitable, you know? So it's like, how can I recognize or find the greatest, greatest profit potential as well so you know like you mentioned limit limit feeding a drag i'm like oh that's genius just yeah you have this really good feed you understand what's out there and you know as long as they're meeting their nutritional requirements you're maintaining that cow and that factory uh the strip grazing gives you great ability to manage uh your cow herd your soil in in and the biology that you have 
out there and, and then manage, manage for your profitability and your operation. I think that's, that's my opinion or viewpoints on it. I think that's a great summary. Yeah. I was going to ask you that, Mary. I think that uh, really pulls together the conversation we've had. For more information on the topic that we did discuss today, again, there's going to be a webinar on March 23rd. Uh, that will be at seven o'clock central time, six o'clock mountain. And again, I know for many of you who are listening to this, you'll be listening to it after the webinar has occurred. But if you go to the beef.unl.edu website, you will be able to see the archive of that and still get the good out of it. So again, appreciate your time today. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Ben, for the project. I think uh, people are going to really find some value in this. That's great. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron.